Welcome to the King's Chapel, Alaska podcast. From wherever you are listening, we are so excited that you tuned in today. Let's prepare our hearts to hear from God's Word. I really do have a, a very strong message from the Lord that I, I can't wait to share with you. And then on Wednesday night, we'll be back here again. And I would love to encourage you to invite your friends. Look, if I didn't embarrass you this morning, you got it made. Wednesday night, I won't embarrass you. All right. I pushed the envelope today. I would love to have the opportunity to minister to you and your friends again on Wednesday night, right here in this sanctuary, right? It all takes place here. So I look forward to that. And then after service, I have to head back to the lower 48. And uh, I've got so many activities. But our military couples that are going through separation and divorce that are being sent to me for healing to restore their marriages. And I would love to have you next week. Well, you pray for me anytime, but next week in particular, uh, starting Monday a week from to, a week from tomorrow, Monday night a week from tomorrow, I start a session with all these married couples or couples that are going through divorce or separation. How many of you believe God wants our marriages to stay together? I believe that He let what God has put together, let no man put asunder. Amen. So uh, I would appreciate your prayers a week from tomorrow. Um, other things that are just going through my mind right now, and that's all I like to do for a few minutes, just share my heart with you. Uh, for those of you that were not here this morning, my wife passed away recently. I really miss her. Uh, she's been part of my... The military calls wives that did not leave their burned husbands who were burned in, in the war. They, they nicknamed them scab pickers. Doesn't sound very pretty, does it? But whenever they get through taking the dead skin off your body and then it will bleed and little scabs show up everywhere, then the wives, out of all 13 of us on my ward, it was called death row because everybody would die. I was supposed to. Everybody did die but me. Brenda is the only woman that stayed with her husband. All the other wives left. Everyone else. And people wonder, what kind of woman was she? I want to tell you a little story about her. I found this out after I got out of the hospital. But they moved the, how many of you know what a Quonset hut is? Quonset hut, all right? It's that round thing that come out of the era of uh, MASH TV. And uh, the Quonset hut's that half moon building, uh, usually about as long as this building, and it's bunk beds. And Well, they turned it into, I think, like five little rooms on each side, about ten rooms one-bedroom rooms, and a common bathroom at the end of the concert hut for everybody. And they moved it by a big truck, moved it in next to Brook Army Medical Center, which is where I was a patient for a year and two months, eight of those months in intensive care. And they moved Brenda into one of those little rooms. Hers was the first one on the left as you go in. At night, everyone in my ward died. No one died during the day. And they died between midnight and about 4 a.m. Something about those darkest hours that the bad news would come. And it would come in the form of a screen door would be open. You know how the old spring will rub against the back side of the door and it's actually carved out a little canal in the wood and it'll twang and pop as it moves open. Some of you aren't old enough to remember screen doors. They used to put them on submarines. <laughs> I just thought of that, and it was stupid. Ignore it. And that thing would pop and twang, and then they would 
pushed the doorknob that was so worn out, it actually slid back and forth. You didn't have to turn it. It didn't unlock anything. It was just there. And you didn't have to polish it because it had been hand rubbed so many times and opening it and closing that door that it stayed shined all the time. And she could hear that screen door pop she, and twang. She could hear that doorknob clack as it hit when they opened it. And then she heard the doctor, the chaplain, and the, the uh, exo, executive officer on duty. Inadvertently, as is common with military, they don't walk independently. They, they march kind of in step. It's just inherent. They always start with the left foot. You'll see any military guy almost always will start out walking with his left foot. And you can tell military guys, hind tight, haircut, and start with the left foot. They would walk down that hall, and there'd be a knock on the door, and people would scream and say, no, 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 and denial, because they knew that whenever, I just spilled water, <laughs> that whenever that executive officer showed up, can you help me out here, man, Pastor? I think I made a mess. I it. Thank you, sir. That when that executive officer showed up, it was bad news. Their loved one on Ward 14A, the intensive core, intensive unit of the intensive care unit, their loved one died. And while everybody was expecting the bad news at any given door on any given night, when that door would pop and twang and that handle would clack, that little teenage wife of mine would get down on her knees in front of that door and put her hands up against the door. And these are her words. Death angel, don't you stop here tonight. He shall live and not die. I'm not here because I'm tough. I'm here because I had a woman that believed in me. Just a little teenage girl that loved me. Little sweet junior high school wife. I loved her so much. So my little scab picker, the one I love, is gone. But not the presence of the Lord. And this is what the Lord said to me. And for those of you that have lost a loved one in grief and in suffering, and I'm going to be talking about some of this tonight. I'm setting it up now. This is what the Lord spoke to me in my understanding of terminology and language, all right? Suck it up, buttercup. That's kind of what he spoke to me. You're not the only one ever lost somebody they love. Quit your crying. Get back on your horse and ride. And I believe the Lord really showed me that we grieve, but the Bible says we grieve, but not as the world grieves. Yeah, it hurts us. We lose our loved ones and we miss them, but we have hope, not only in Christ Jesus in this life only, but in the life of the world to come. And the Bible says if our hope was in Christ Jesus in this life only, we'd be of all men most miserable. But I'm not miserable. I'm really quite a happy camper and loving every day that God has given me to continue to fight and move forward. And today I'm all over the world with our troops, wherever they send me. And I love being with our troops. So when I said thank you to our warriors in this house, some from the era of Vietnam, maybe even Korea. I don't know how far back you may go in service to our country. Whatever generation of veteran you are, it's not where you serve, it's who you serve that matters. Thank you for serving our country, and I'm honored to minister to you tonight. I would like to bring uh, attention to a scripture 
And I noticed, Pastor, you have that Bible. Man, I envy you. I can't hold things very good. My hands are so shot up and ruined. If I held a Bible like you do, it'd be all over the floor. But if you have your iPhones, turn with me. I waited all night to say that. This comes from uh, Psalm 84. And if you do have your scriptures, would you look at it? Go ahead and take them. A lot of times we just kind of blow by it, and, and you're satisfied for me to read it for you. I don't know if it's on the screen. I didn't give them the scripture. I gave them a title of the message. But the scripture is Psalm 84, verse 5, 6, and 7. I'd like to read it for you. I'll read from the King James because that's what I grew up with. And I love the message Bible and all that. But it confuses me to hear scriptures that aren't quoted exactly the way I learned it. You know, it kind of messes me up. So I'll go ahead and stick with the King James except for pleasure just reading the Bible for the fun of it, which is fun to do. It's fun. There's some great stories in the Bible. Oh, my word. They're all great stories. Uh, but this one is especially important. I'm going to read it from the King James, then I'll, I'll give you the definition of a few words that will bring it to life. But let's look at it. Verse 5 of Psalm 84. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are the ways of them who passing through the valley of Baca make it a well, the rain also filleth the pools. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. Now, just reading that, it does leave a little bit to be desired and understanding. It's easy to understand that part. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee. Put it in any form of regular English or old English, it comes out the same. If your strength is in God, you're blessed. Amen. I mean, there's nobody going, how do, you, how do you argue with that? But what does it mean that says that in whose heart are the ways of them? That word ways is our root word for highways. Now, now let me read this again with the definition of, of what it means. Blessed is the man whose strength is in the in whose heart are the highways to heaven. Now, I grew up hearing straight is the way. Narrow is the gate, and few there will be that enter in. And probably you won't make it, Dave. Because I always thought, I mean, I'm a teenager. I thought, I've sinned the sin against the Holy Ghost. I'll never be forgiven. I smoked a cigarette. I'm going to go straight to hell. You know, that's I used to. I did try to smoke. I, I couldn't inhale. Bill Clinton and I have several things in common. <laughs> she didn't get that. Pastor will explain it next Sunday. See, in the heart, it's a highway to heaven, but in the eyes of the world, being a believer, a Christ follower, it's straight and narrow. It, you know, what do you do for fun? No sex, no drugs, no alcohol, no what? How, what do you do for fun when they've got, you know, STDs and BVDs and DVDs? I don't know what all they... Listen, the world doesn't like to talk about what they got, so they put initials on it. Am I right? They're not going to call it what it is. You know, fooling around is fornication. But they're not going to call it that. Adultery is having an affair. Have you had an affair? It sounds better than you commit adultery. See, they don't do that. No, they don't want to call it what it is. So they nickname stuff so they don't have to deal with it. I'm going to tell you something. In the world, in the eyes of the world, we're so narrow-minded. But in my eye, when they're coming down with every disease known to man for all the sins they've committed, and they're saying, I'm, I'm narrow, they're so narrow-minded, they can look down a soda straw with both eyes. And they're, and they're calling me narrow-minded. 
Give me a break. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are the Autobahn to heaven. What's the difference in an Autobahn and a freeway? Who knows? No speed limit. I was in Germany some years ago on a military tour, and there was an elderly couple that had retired. He was a general, and they loved Germany so much they just stayed there and lived there. And they were really quite elderly. They opened their home for ministry to, to the warriors, to the troops during the evenings and during the week. And so I went and stayed with them. And one night, one day she said, well, let, let's go shopping. So we got in there leaning just forward, and I noticed he got in the back left seat behind the driver's seat. And he said, you sit up front on the right. And so I did. She drove. And I noticed that the steering wheel was doing this at 90, which was full speed of that little English fry. It wouldn't go any faster. And those Mercedes with all those ground air effects going zoom, zoom by us. She would turn green with envy. She wanted a helmet. She wanted to drive one of those fast ones. And I didn't know if the wheel was doing that to her or if she was doing that to the steering wheel. And I said, sir, wouldn't you rather sit up? He said, no, sir, she's my airbag. There's a little, a little, there's something missing in confidence there. The Autobahn to heaven was wide open. Saints, listen to me. In this, in this amazing trek to glory, in our heart, it's a highway. The world thinks we're straight and narrow, but in our heart, it's a joyful walk. It's a run. It's a wide open but you'll notice it passes through a valley called Baca, B-A-C-A. I looked that term up. I thought Baca was what you spray in your mouth so nobody knows you've been smoking. That's Banaca. <laughs> what do I know? See, you know what the Greek guys yeah, about this tall runs a pizza shop there in Chicago. It's only Greek I know. It's fun. Some of you catch it. Some of you don't. It's all right. Some of it's stupid and some of it's not. So I'm not the best speaker. In whose heart are the ways of them? Passing through the valley of, are you ready? Sorrow. Weeping. Gnashing of teeth. Uh, there was a place Jesus called Gehenna. Remember that? The place where the fire is not quenched. The worm dieth not. Describing hell. Gehenna came from the original word Hinnom, the Valley of Hinnom, which is where the children of Israel in the old days used to pass their children through the fire. In, in disobedience to God, they actually put their babies, their children, in burnt sacrificial offerings to the evil god Moloch in Satan worship. People think it costs too much to serve God to pay your tithes. Try serving the devil, and he'll, he'll make you pay with your children. The kids always seem to get hurt the worst. This valley of weeping, this valley of Baca, is the same exact geographical depression that David is writing about that Jesus referred to that is also known as the Valley of Hinnom. It's outside of Lebanon. It is a place that is historically related to great suffering. Let me give you an example. In my work with the Department of Defense, I'm sent all over the battlefields of the world, wherever our troops are. In the peak of the war, they, had, they were searching for WMDs, weapons of mass destruction. 
There was a palace known as the Perfume Palace. Saddam had many palaces. All of them got bombed except the Perfume Palace. And the Perfume Palace is where he kept his little concubines, his little prostitutes. He had a bunch of swimming pools in that thing. And the top of it looked like a perfume cap, a perfume bottle top. From the air, it looked like a mosque. And the American pilots, out of respect for the religion of Islam, would not bomb what they thought was a mosque. But it was one of Saddam's palaces for his concubines. It is where the ISG, the Iraqi Survey Group, was housed. ISG is another word for CIA. I was there in, to train, and as I was training in that facility, I was amazed that it had survived all that war without any serious damage of anything. In the ISG, you're not supposed to have even the name tag on your chest. No one's supposed to know each other by name. You're supposed to always have an excuse of plausible deniability. And my being there was really quite exceptional. Inside that magnificent palace was an octagonal setting. There were eight screens in a circular pattern. Each screen had its own source and resource of evidence, we'll call it. One screen was a U-2 pilot taking video from 70,000 feet. Another screen was a helmet cam on a warrior somewhere. Another screen was a camera on a tank. Another screen of a different thing, a different kind, pardon me, of a different place. All of this information fed into this one place called the ISG at the Perfume Palace. They're looking for weapons of mass destruction. I got up to speak, and they shut down everything. All the screens were turned off. All the pie-shaped segments were 10 to 15 eyes were on each screen all the time, 24-7, looking for evidence of weapons of mass destruction. They shut everything down, and I got the entire organization in one room at one time. So I get up to speak to them. I said, you know, I'm, I'm not really qualified to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. You're looking in all the wrong places. And they laughed, you know, because they thought I was joking. I said, but if you really want to find out where all those trucks went that left Saddam several months earlier before we finally invaded, if you want to know where those trucks went, if you don't want to know where those 747s delivered all that cargo that went to the Middle East, uh, went from Saddam's palaces and Saddam's various depots, all you got to do is go to Lebanon. Go outside there to a place that's under the secure watch of the Syrian secret police. It's called the Bekaa Valley. A little different spelling, B-A-K-K-A-H instead of B-A-C-C-A. It's the same exact place that Terry Waite of the British journalist and all those other hostages were kept for 700 or whatever it was days under Carter administration and then into the Reagan administration who he finally delivered all of them. If you want to go to where those weapons of mass destruction that don't exist, exist, try going to the Bacaw Valley because you're going to find that the historical truth of that place will never be changed. It will always be a valley of weeping and sorrow. It's amazing. They didn't look at me and laugh. Then they knew I wasn't joking. You see, David wrote of this place because it was historic that the bleaching bones of camel and trusty rider out there in that 
God-forsaken desert were only testaments of the sorrow of that depressed, literally, geographical depression, that depressed place where sorrow reigned, where many of the old lepers would go and cry, unclean, unclean, unclean. Well, I want you to understand something, folks. Whether I'm right or wrong is not the point. Weapons of mass destruction are weapons of mass destruction. You want to find the valley of weeping? You don't have to go to the Middle East. Get in your car and drive a few minutes from this very spot. You may find a place right here in Wasilla or two where people are broken and hurting in the valley of sorrow and the stench of flies in the ointment has been so long that they've grown accustomed to the pain. And I want to tell you, we on our highway to heaven are passing through that valley. So what do you do when you pass through the valley? What do you do when you pass through this place of waterless, dry spirits wandering in the desert? What do you do? You get a shovel and you don't leave home without it. It's called dig a well. And the rain also fills the pools. What does that mean? Well, there's something about well diggers you should know. They're not especially the best dressed folks you'll ever meet. Well diggers usually wear some old overall or dungarees that smell like the last well and the water was stenchy and nasty. And, and they got grease all over them from putting on those stems of pipe that go down deeper and deeper. I know because when my wife and I bought the little place that we live in today, 50 years ago, there was no water, no electricity, no sewer, nothing. So I bought the property un, unenhanced with all those things. And Brenda said, we, what do we need for So we got to get electricity because you can't run a well without a pump and we can't get water without a pump in a well. So you got to have electricity. So we got electricity and then I said, now I'm going to go get a, a phone brought out. And they brought out a phone and put it in a little box on a pole said, you can use this till you get your house built. So I took it. Remember the yellow pages? Oh, boy, did I just tell you how old I am? Kids are saying, the what? Yeah, yellow pages, sucker. Get old and you'll know what I'm talking about. I got the yellow pages and under well digging service, the first name I came to was A, all red, well digging services. I dialed it up. This is the conversation, quite honestly, the way it went. Ring, ring, ring. Hello? What? Excuse me? What? He said. I said, is this all red well digging service? Yes. Is this Mr. Allred? Yes. I need a well dug. Where? Ten Mile Bridge Road. When? Soon. Okay, click. My wife said, did you order a well? I said, I think so. I don't know. She said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to go up on the four-wheeler up to the paved road, and I'm just going to sit there until someone shows up with a well digging service that says all red on the side. So I went up. Hours later, here comes this white pickup, so old that the well digging service logo of red was now faded pink. You could hardly read it. It was a nasty old truck, old rusty A-frame and buckets hanging off. When he bounced onto my unimproved property, the buckets fell off. Oh, Lord, the clampets have come to dig me a well. 
Jed Clampett at your service. Are you Mr. Allred? Yes. I need a well. Where? <laughs> this guy's a one-word wonder. I said, I don't know. Get your stick out and do that thing where you walk around and point at the ground. I don't know. He said, where are you going to build the house? I said, oh, Elizabeth, this is a big one. He said, what's the matter with you? I said, you spoke a full sentence. This is a true story, folks. I said, you spoke a full sentence. He said, what would you expect? I said, well, I just want a well. Where are you going to build the house? I said, over there. He said, why don't we put the well close to where you're going to build the house? Why didn't I think of that? One word wonder showed me how smart I was. So he goes over close to where I'm going to build a house. And he starts his engine up and engages what's called the PTO, the power takeoff. Clunk, bang, crank, 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 crank. And something starts spinning. He starts putting stems of pipe on. And that thing hit our old caliche there in Texas. That's old dry white rock. It's so hard. It popped and smoked. And I thought, man, you know, it's so dry here. Our trees fight over dogs, you know. Our catfish have ticks. He thinks he's going to get water out of this. Well, it took him about 30 minutes to go about three feet. And I thought, this is going to take a lifetime. He doesn't have enough fuel to run this thing. But then as he went deeper, it got better. Next thing, he's added another stem and another stem and another stem. And he's pulling pipe from out, underneath, out from underneath that truck that held stems and stems of at 125 feet, he hit the third level of the Trinity River in the sweetest water. 53 years later, I'm still drinking from that well. He said to me, as he pulled up the first glass in a metal tin cup that was sweating, there was more water dripping off that than I'd seen in my life. It felt like cold, clear. He said, taste of this. I said, oh, Mr. Allred, sir, may I compliment I don't know who your tailor is, but boy, those dungarees are really nice. I don't know what cologne you wear, but man, does it have a fragrance. And sir, I don't know where you bought your equipment, but that there's a nice truck you've got. If you don't get my drift, the world doesn't really care how many, how many, uh, what they call sheepskins on your wall, how many degrees and doctorates you've got. And I have my doctorates. I have my degrees. I even got some third degree to go along with it. You know, when you're thirsty, they're just looking for a well digger. And when you give them that drink of water, they're not going to say what Bible college did you go to, even though I went and I thank God for everything I learned. It's enhanced my life. But the well digger is there to give water, and those that are thirsty are not going to question. They just want, and you're going to be the most beautiful person they met all day. So don't give me the excuse of, well, I'm not properly trained. Well, I believe in education. In fact, I am president of several universities. I got to tell you, I believe in divine truth. I believe it should be taught. And we should study to show ourselves approved. But don't tell me I don't have a reason I can be used of God because I don't have that official degree. Folks, 
A willing heart is a doctrine in the eyes of God. Amen? Do, do I give both sides of that argument credence? Because here's the facts. I want to be an educated man. My mom taught me to speak King's English very well and to be able to express myself without saying, it don't make no difference, no how, do it. It does make a difference. But my goal is not to reach somebody because I can speak King's English well. My goal is to speak to them because they're thirsty and I got water. And if you were here this morning, as you know, I got water and it's all over everything. It's not the bottle that matters, but you can't have delivery of the water without the vessel it comes in. So I guess what I'm trying to tell you is we live in a valley of brokenness, broken people. And I remember one year I was, I was in my tour bus and we were traveling through Montana. I looked out and there was a, a herd of the most beautiful Mustangs, wild Mustangs. They were running out, just wide open out across that beautiful, beautiful field out there. It was, it was an open range, and, they, and their mane was out, and their tails were high, and their nose was sniffing the air and suction a great amount of air into those huge wind pops and those giant lungs. They, it was the most beautiful picture of freedom you'd ever see. And, and it dawned on me, wow. That's amazing. Look at the horse. Isn't it gorgeous? You know, in the open market, they can't sell them because they're worthless. They're worthless. You know why? They've never been broken. I, I go to churches all over the world. You know what I see? A lot of magnificent people. You not included except you're magnificent. But the ones I see so often that are wonderful are worthless because they've never been broken. You see, there's something about being broken. And I'm not advocating suffering. I'm not saying let's go stand in front of a Wasilla city bus and get run over. So we got a testimony. Folks, I got all the testimony I want, more than I can use. I don't need any more suffering. I'm not saying I won't. I'm not saying any of us won't have more suffering in the future. I don't know. But I'm not looking for it. Don't go looking for suffering. Suffering's out there looking for you. And when it comes to pass, don't run from it and don't run to it. Just embrace it if it comes and say, God, what will I learn? What lesson in life will I learn from being broken? Because until we have been broken, we're worthless. Now, you're sitting there listening to me, and you're saying, what are you talking about, David Ewer? Remember I mentioned this morning old Simon Peter sitting on the porch with tears dripping through his fingers as he realized he was not the man he thought he was when Jesus predicted that, that the job of a server girl and the crowing of a rooster, Simon Peter, would deny Christ. And Peter denied that he would deny. He disclaimed that he would disclaim. He forbid that he would forbid that Jesus was the Son of God and that he was one of the followers of Christ and at the job of a servant girl, and the crowing of a rooster, he sold out to the devil. I don't know who that man is. I have never met him. I'm not a follower of Christ. I don't know. And you know how he finally convinced that little girl that Jesus was not his Savior? You know how he finally convinced that little girl that he was not a follower of Christ? He cursed 
does a pretty good job of doing that, you know. Curse little, the world knows you don't have anything to do with Jesus. But thank you for that one that's right in the crowd. A little bit of cursing will generally convince the world we're not one of his. Peter cursed and said, I know not the man. And turned and of all things, Jesus was standing right there and heard everything he said. You see those tears. I mentioned it this morning and I'm following up on it tonight. Those tears are the product of that uncomfortable, undesirable, shun it if you can moment of self-discovery when we find out we're not the God we thought we were. I'm not the man I thought I was. You're not the woman you thought you were. You thought you would never fail. Jesus, if you ever want me, call 1-800-DAVE-REVER and I'll be right there. You can count on me. How many times have we promised and then at the job of the world we've forsaken? How many promises that, God, if you'll deliver me, ah, you can count on me only to be not found but on absent a wall, absent without leave? How many times? Now, these are challenging questions. And I think they're worth asking because until we get an answer to this in our own personal walk with Christ, I'm afraid we're unbroken and we're worthless because until we're broken, God cannot use us. If you want to be like Jesus, don't expect to get through life without being broken because Jesus himself said, this is my body which is broken for you. And being broken many times is expressed in the physical of our trinity. Physical, Emotional, spiritual, body, soul, and spirit. Our body is many times the example of our soul. You ever see that horse I mentioned, high-spirited? Why would we call a high-spirited horse high-spirited? Because the expression of that horse in pawing the air, rearing up, it's a high-spirited horse. How, how do you know it's high-spirited? Because it's expressed through his body. Our body language speaks so much. Even the Bible says, thy countenance, that's physical, thy countenance doth betray thee. Let me give you an example. You can say the same two alphabetical words and get two totally different meanings. Do you like this? You can say, it's okay. Or do you like this? It's okay. Same two letters, two totally different expressions. You see, our body does often give the physical expression. Even John wrote to Gaius, if you remember in 1 John, he said, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth and is in health. So he's saying, I hope you're as physically well as you are spiritually well. Now, don't wish that on everybody. Because some people are spiritually dead and they might fall over and keel over dead if you wish that on them. Now that right there is funny. I don't care who you are. So what happens when you've been broken? What happens in the valley of weeping, in the valley of sorrow, you may shed more tears than you'll drink of water from the well you dug for somebody else. But verse 7 says they go from strength strength. Let's put it this way. The well digger goes from well to well. Every one of them appeareth before God in Zion, which is to say 
If you're a well digger for others, you will never be without a well to drink the water of life from till the day you stand before God in heaven. In our highway to heaven that passes through the valley of weeping, yeah, we'll dig a lot of wells. We don't hit any water. Not all wells hit water. But you know what can happen if you just leave it and go on singing a joyful song and dig another well? The rains may come and fill that well with water. It could also break up some of the hardened ground and cause that well to start producing water. Or maybe, listen to this, it's nothing more than a footprint in the sand. But the rain that came filled that little footprint with an inch and a half of water, and that blowing seed of the palm landed there, and that water caused that seed to reproduce and sprout little legs that gripped a couple of strands or, or grains of sand and started to grow. And one day it became a sprout, then a tree, and an oasis that spread forth more seeds. And one day that tree provided life, water, shelter for those that came behind. And it started with nothing more than an impression in the sand that you had been there. So it begs the point, how do we know if what we do is successful or not? We don't always know. But I can tell you, we do know this. If you don't show up, nothing happens. Amen? So, Brother Dave, I'm not a, I'm not a renowned speaker. I'm not a silver-tongued orator. I don't have a sheepskin on the wall of doctorate and theology. Brother Dave this and Brother Dave, wait a minute. Where'd you go today? What'd you do today? Where were you today? Where did you leave a footprint of your presence that may be all that's necessary for somebody to one day have a place of shelter because you were there? So today, I go to where I'm most comfortable. I go to church on Sundays, Monday through Friday. I don't go to church unless it's unusual, and I get to do that Wednesday here. Y'all are crazy. You have Sunday night, Wednesday night? No, are you out of your mind? Christians quit going to church anymore than they have to. Not you. And boy, do you make a lot of noise when you get there. I was sitting there at night watching that little darling girl up here broken before the Lord. And I'm seeing others with tears streaming, others shouting the joyful words of praise, and I'm listening to the ministry and music, and I'm thinking, these people aren't dead. This is not the dead in Christ. I found a bunch of them, and there's some of them in Alaska, but not in this place. And if you're a visitor here, wasn't it good to drink a little bit of the water of joy and the bubbling sound of a brook that's alive instead of stench of water that's been bathed in six months in a row, the same old water? Yuck. That's why I said this morning, and I feel it again tonight, if you'll listen to me, if you will believe my words, if you will trust my leading of the Spirit of Christ in my heart and life and what I say, if you will take me up on the offer, you can be the epicenter of a grand awakening that can spread across America from a little town called Wasilla. Because God does not use big things. He uses small beginnings for big things. And in the little town of Wasilla, why not it be called one day the greatest awakening in church history?
begin in the coldest place, coldest state, among the hottest fire burning in Wasilla King's Chapel. Amen? Why not? Why not? You say, oh, Brother Dave, that's just hype talk. Well, then you don't believe me, and it won't happen. But if you believe me, if you'll trust me, if you'll let an outsider come in and give you an honest review, not building you up because I get something out of it. Oh, there'll be a love offering, but I don't care if you give or not. I don't get the money anyway. Well, I care if you give because I want my warriors to succeed. I want to provide for all the needs for them that I can. But I didn't come here to get your money. I came here to get your heart. I didn't come here to give you a purpose. I came here to drive your purpose with a passion. Did I tell you the difference this morning? If you weren't here and if I didn't say it in both services, I'll repeat it. The purpose-driven church, the purpose-driven life, the purpose-driven series or great books, the purpose-driven car for all I care. It's great. You get up on purpose, or if you don't get up on purpose, you lay there in bed, get bed sores, and die of gangrene. So on purpose, you get up and go to work at McDonald's on purpose. What's, what's the point? My point is this. The difference in purpose and Dave Reaver is a word called passion. I'm writing a book called The Passion-Driven Purpose. What's the difference? On purpose, you can go to work at McDonald's. Or with passion, you can own the McDonald's everybody else goes to work for. And if, in fact, McDonald's is the best franchise in the world, why not go for passion first? You see, it's called the passion of Christ, not the purpose of Christ. The passion of Christ. Here's the purpose of Christ. And for this cause, I came I unto this hour. He came for a cause. That was his purpose. But to succeed in his purpose, he had to be passionately driven to allow them to nail him to the cross, to whip him with a cat of nine tails till his entrails were visible through his back. That, my friend, is not purpose. That is the passion of Christ. I want to be a passion-driven man. I don't want to be an also-ran, a good-enough-for-government-work guy. I don't want to be normal. I want to be abnormal. I don't want to be spiritual. I want to be beyond spiritual. I want to be supernatural. How do you do that? By not settling for okay. Remember that word? Don't settle for it's okay. Settle for it's okay. It's great. It's good, Brother Dave. You see, the world's got enough of the mediocre. Be the 110%. That's how you achieve the greatness in the kingdom of God and among your peers in the world. You never settle for good enough. Go the next step. Go the extra mile. The ab and the normal. So on July the 26th, 1969, in the story I shared with you this morning, on the bank of a river, the grenade exploded. It blew 60 pounds of my flesh off me in seconds. Blinded, deafened. I got my sight back, got my hearing back. I can see through my eyes. I can hear through my ears. I can see through my ears. You want to take a bet? I can take it off and look through it. I can see through my ears. I should have taken bets, but I wouldn't need love offering with that. Some of you said, Brother Dave, I think you got brain. I do not have Dame Brandon. 
So why are you laughing about it? Because my passion would not let me settle for just getting well. I want to make the devil pay for everything he ever did to me. You see, this is the way I see it. On July the 26th, he took a stick and he beat me severely around the head and shoulders. He hurt me. But he made a fatal error, folks. He started laughing and threw down the stick and walked away, mocking me. He shouldn't have Norton have done it. In my brokenness, I crawled over to the stick he threw down. The stick he beat me with, the stick of pain, the stick of suffering, the stick of suicidal depressions, the stick of anxiety attacks, the stick of post-traumatic stress disorder, the stick of every evil thing that could come out of suffering that God had not yet taught me. I used that stick to help me get back on my feet. I used the stick of suffering to stand me up again. And when I speak in a public school, those kids look at me and they say, he knows how I feel. He's on the outside, what I am on the inside, mutilated, broken, hurt, afraid to be looked at and laughed at and mocked. Oh, you wouldn't believe some of the inner city schools I've been to when I step out, the kids go crazy laughing, mocking, pulling their mouth down, imitating me. I just fold my arms, stand there and smile until they wonder why I'm smiling. They shut up long enough for me to say something. And all I got to do is say something. And the next thing I know, they're eating out of my hand. In fact, they eat my hand, I think. And so you wonder where my thumb went. Now you know. Why? What is it? Because my passion drives my purpose. And that stick the devil beat me with, I'm beating him with it all over the face of the earth. Get a stick and hit the devil. Get a stick and hit the devil. Get a stick and hit the devil. What do you mean, brother? Well, I got it from somebody that taught me out of his suffering. They used two sticks on him. And the very instrument of death that they would use to take the life of the most precious son of the almighty God, the one and only, the very tools of murder used against him would become the signature of our salvation, the cross of Jesus Christ. He died on that weapon used against him that we could use that weapon against the devil. So he took two staves of wood and he beat the devil severely around the head and shoulders. And one day, the ultimate gift of life will be fulfilled in the everlasting life that now our physical body shall enjoy that our spiritual man already knows. We will achieve glory in eternity that we already have glory in our heart and relationship with Christ. Isn't that an awesome thought? Isn't that an awesome thought? You do believe Jesus is coming back, right? Uh, you do believe in a place called heaven, don't you? I play the guitar. I'm not real good at it, but I'll tell you the story. Uh, I grew up to have a, an ear for music, which <laughs> I could go down that road. I played by ear. <laughs> I took it out and played Mary Had a Little Lamb on the piano, and I played the piano by ear. But And I'll, they'll put it on my grave and play the piano by I could walk on water, and they'd say I played the piano by ear. I played the guitar. At 12 years old, I was trained by a 12-year-old child prodigy that could play every song that had ever been produced, written, and released by Chet Adkins 
and you couldn't tell the difference in who was playing it. The most magnificent guitarist I've ever known in my life. He was 12, I was 12, and he taught me how to play guitar. And I learned to play the Chet Atkins style. And one day on a bank of a river in Vietnam, a grenade blew off the lower three fingers and thumb of my right hand. On the finger left attached was this one. These were hanging by tendons. I was pumping blood out of an open artery. This thumb was gone, which is tantamount, paramount to playing because you have to squeeze the neck of a guitar. And if you use what are called bar chords, you've got to have back pressure. So on the bank of a river, what do you think pops up in my mind as an image that's not really there, but in hallucination? I see a guitar levitating right in front of me. I spoke to that guitar. Wasn't the first words I said. These are the first words I said. When the grenade exploded, I'm covered in 5,000 degrees, white hot phosphorus. I jump in the water. I'm still burning. Water cannot extinguish phosphorus, if you remember that from this morning. I told you I'd give a little review for those that were not here. So here it is. When I surfaced, I inhaled. When I did, I sucked that fire right down into my bronchial tubes. I cough a lot because all those little follicles of hair that push out moisture, keep you from getting pneumonia, they're gone and they don't come back. They're burned out. So I cough to keep my lungs clear. I should have died of COVID. My wife was the healthy one. She died of COVID, not me. I don't know why. God will have to explain that one to me, Lucy. But here's the story, folks. That day, when I spoke my first words, fire came out of my mouth in a ball of fire. I said, God, I still believe in you. That's an exact quote. Three guys off my boat and four on the cover boat. Seven men heard my utterance of faith. I had been living for Christ eight months at great peril. They ridiculed, mocked me. They called me Dudley Do-Right. Three guys on my boat, I'm being the fourth. They called me Dudley Do-Right. Dr. Doolittle, I didn't do drugs, I didn't sleep around with those little Vietnamese girls, and the third name they called me was Preacher Man. I thought that was a compliment. I called them in turn, pervert number one, pervert number two, and pervert number three. And they thought that was a compliment. They fought over who'd be pervert number one. My enemy was not in the bushes nearly compared to my enemy in the barracks. The Bushes guy just wanted to kill my body. The guy in my barracks wanted to kill my soul. And I refused to die. And that day on the bank of the river when they thought I was dead, and it went all the way to the Pentagon. It took 34 years to correct. They wrote me up as killed in action. When they thought I was dead on the bank of that river, they said the nicest things about me. I couldn't tell them I wasn't dead. They'd have killed me. That's true. That guitar's in front of me. What do you think the first words I said? You heard them? God, I still believe in you. What do you think the second ones were? Guitar, I will play you again. That's an exact quote as I look with my fingers dangling, blood shooting from an open artery. And the phosphorus that was consuming my body now cauterized and sealed off the artery that was bloodletting me. I was hemorrhaging, and the thing that was about to kill me now saved my life. It's kind of like getting saved. Destroys the flesh that the spirit might come to life. Did you follow that one? Now that's good there, folks. Guitar, I'll play you again. 
What happened next was I fell over backwards. That's when they thought I died. They said the nice things. The helicopter landed to pick up my body. In the helicopter, I said, medic. They found out I wasn't dead, scared the medic out to death. He jumped and almost fell out of the helicopter. The pilot lost control. We're dropping like a rock. And I thought, oh, Lord, we're going to crash and I'll be the only survivor. They got me to Saigon, then to Japan. I asked for a mirror. I saw what was left, and I pulled the tube because I didn't want Brenda to see me. I tried to commit suicide, but thank God I got hungry. <laughs> I pulled the wrong tube. And I got home to America to, to find out that little girl, that little teenager, that little 13-year-old asked to marry me that slapped me. Remember her? I talked about her this morning. Will you marry me? She slapped me. She said, I'm only 13. I said, yeah, the body of a 14-year-old. She slapped me again. Well, that little girl brought my guitar up to the hospital and put it under my bed when I was going through physical therapy one day. That's when they crunch on your fingers and they crunch on your mind. And she was a two-bar captain, that woman. We called her Captain Crunch. And she was destroying me emotionally and physically. I hated her. She hurt me more than the grenade. And I'm coming back exhausted, worn out. I'm laying down like this in the wheelchair. And I'm looking up. I can see under the bed. My guitar's under the bed. The guitar case. I look over and there's my little teenage wife smiling so proud of herself. I said, you and that guitar, get out. It's the meanest thing I ever said to her in our 53 years of marriage. She said, no. Where's all that godly woman submit yourself to your husband's stuff when you really need it? I said, yes. She said, no. That was the full extent of our conversation verbally. Two words, me saying yes and her saying no for an hour and 45 more minutes. That was it. And the distance between the two words got longer and longer. And finally, the nurses came and said, Miss Brenda, sweetheart, you have to go on her way out as she was still in earshot. I said, yes. At the elevator, I heard, no, ding, the doors went shut and she was gone. <laughs> Weeks followed and at night I could hear the guitar crying, play me, play me. And one day I just couldn't take it anymore. That evening I crawled out of bed and they're very high. You fall out of bed and have more damage than what puts you there. Job security. I reached under the bed and slid that case open. There's the little note on top of those strings that said, you can do it, David. She always did believe in me. I took the guitar out on the fire escape and with these hands, these fingers, that would never play that Chet Atkins style again. To this day, I could never do that. These fingers just... They don't work. I'm going to stop a second and tell you what the Lord just spoke to me. Somebody in this house right now struggling with suicide, and I felt it this morning, you were here this morning. I'm going to tell you, you have a broken mind and a broken spirit, and Jesus is the healer of the brokenhearted. 
I can't blame those fingers for not being able to play that guitar. And you stop blaming yourself for the things you cannot change. But don't tell me you can't live your life and be happy again. I couldn't play that style. And without a thumb, I couldn't squeeze that neck with the back pressure that the thumb would give because even that was gone. They made that out of my hip. I don't suck it. Don't suck your hip. You might hurt your neck. Boy, that's gross. If you're in junior high, you really like me. My first strum of that guitar was clunk, clunk. The strings couldn't resonate. I couldn't pick it. But I remembered those first chords. Go back to your first love. The first chords that little 12-year-old boy taught this little 12-year-old boy, it wasn't a bar chord, those complicated majors, minors, augments, and accidentals. All those chords, and actually they are called accidentals. I couldn't make those chords, but I could go back to those. I called them my country chords. Little three-string G and three-string C and three-string D. And if I pull against the neck and I hold it with my right arm and I strum instead of pick, I could make a resonant of those strings that rang true. And I played it and I sang Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And when I got through playing, I heard clapping and cheering, and I thought, wow, what an imagination. But it wasn't imagination. I didn't know, but the back wall that held up the other end of the steps that was held up by the other end of the steps on the wall of the building of the fire escape echoed into every ward of all those floors, the echo of that guitar and the voice singing, amazing grace. And they clapped and cheered and said, more, more, more. And my heart swelled. Then I remembered, it's the psych ward up there. They thought it was french fries. More french fries, more french fries. So I dragged the guitar all the way back into my bed and I looked down and my guitar was covered with blood and skin. I had played the guitar and beaten all the skin off these fingers. So lost in the presence of Jesus. I played the guitar again. And again and again since then, not long ago, I was out at the ranch in Texas. And the Eagle Summit Ranch, Texas, is in the middle of a giant reserve. And we have elk. Have you ever heard of an elk with nine points on one side and eight on the other? You ever heard of an elk that big? You ever heard of four species of deer coexisting in one piece of property? It's a gorgeous place. So one night we're on the banners, on the balcony or what? It's actually a veranda outside of the lodge. And I have about 50 of my warriors out there. And I'm sitting on the banister edge and I'm playing the guitar. And behind me is the reserve, and all the animals are scattered all out there. And you can hear them. They're beautiful. You can see them. They're magnificent. And I noticed as I was playing the guitar, singing Amazing Grace, telling the story I just told you, my warriors were not looking at me. You know, if I'm looking at you and I'm looking here, you can tell I'm not looking at you, right, Pastor? You can tell I'm not. They weren't looking at me. They were looking past me. I turned to look. All the elk had come up. out. These are wild elk, folks. You don't go near them. They'll kill you. I had nine of the biggest elk you'll ever see in your life standing 
20 yards behind me as I'm singing Amazing Grace. I was so amazed I stopped and they started bugling. And they bugled all nine of them at the same time. And then they stopped. And I started singing Amazing Grace again. And when I stopped, they started bugling again. We did this three times. I stopped, they bugled, they stopped bugling, I started playing. Three times, and at the end of the third time, they turned and they all walked back into the tree line and we didn't see them again until the next day. One of my warriors who was shot up at the Fort Hood mass murder took a bullet through the throat, through the jugular vein, into his shoulder, and somehow lived. Today, he's my associate, and I'm training to replace me as leadership, the voice and face of this ministry. Captain of the Green Beret, John Arroyo. John said, if we do not praise the Lord, the fields of the tree, the trees of the field will clap their hands. The rocks will cry out and the elk will bugle. You see, there's something about being broken that Jesus just loves about us. Because until we're broken, we're arrogant, we're proud, can't be used. We think we're better than everybody else. We're nothing but critical all the time. Nobody ever does anything right. Never word out of your mouth. It's constantly putting somebody else down because you're trying to lift yourself up. But when you're broken, it's hard to brag about yourself. When your pieces are scattered all over Southeast Asia into the South China Sea or scattered across Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, UAE, Afghanistan, Syria, Bosnia, Kosovo, wherever Iraq, it doesn't matter. And your pieces are scattered across some hospital in Alaska or the ashes of your loved one are scattered. Don't you see what I'm saying? Until we're broken, the light inside has no way to escape through the cracks of our brokenness. And when we're broken, they don't see us. They see the light that's in us. They drink the water that's in the insignificant container of a plastic bottle. But it can't be delivered. The water cannot be delivered without it. And I think the best story of that comes from Gideon. When he took 300 men, so counting himself, 301 men went down to fight against the Midianites. And he said, take this pitcher and put a candle down in it, light the candle. And upon my shout and command, break the pitcher and the light will come on in the midst of darkness. They'll scare the enemy so bad they'll fight against themselves and kill each other off. And they did. What was the shout he told them? Who can tell me? What was the shout he told them to shout when they broke the pitcher? The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. The sword of the Lord. That's what I say. The water and the plastic bottle. <laughs> it's okay, I guess, to have a little ego. I guess it's okay to have a little self-assurance and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I am more than a conqueror through Christ who strengthens me. No weapon formed against me can prosper, for greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. So I guess we need to always remember who we are in the body of Christ. I'm a child of the Most High God. I'm a child of the King, but I'm a broken vessel. And until you're broken, how do you think you could ever look like Jesus?
who was broken for us, now it's our turn to be broken for him. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. And I hope somehow through this broken body, this stammering lips, this lisping tongue, I can say to you, it's okay in the valley of sorrow to drink the water, but don't leave home without a shovel. I told you that this morning be a rosy, and if you weren't here, shame, you could have been here. No, I'm kidding. Thank you for going to church wherever you were, but thanks for coming here tonight. Be a rosy to somebody. Be Jesus to somebody. Give them the water of life. Let's make a difference in the world we live in. Let's be the epicenter of the greatest awakening in the history of the church in the modern era. Amen. Thank you for joining today's podcast. If God is impacting your life through this ministry, you can partner with us and give at kcalaska.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our channel and enjoy more messages like this one.